Uh, I want to, especially if this is your first time here at the church, I want to welcome you. Um, and I want to say this, we say this often, that wherever you are on your journey of knowing Jesus and following Jesus, like this is a safe place for you to be able to process your faith. That if you have doubts or if you have questions, you want to kick the tires, then guess what? That's why we planted this church. We planted this church in part for you and for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time. Then my prayer for you is that God would do in you the same work that I'm asking him to do in my life, right? God, help me to grow. Help me to live out this faith, what you have called us to do. Right? We don't want to start. That's, what, that's part of why our name is reality, right? It's reality because we want to be able to experience an authentic relationship with God. Our mission is to lead people to discover and display the reality of Jesus. I want you to discover him. If you don't know him today, listen, Jesus is real. He came 2,000 years ago. He died on a cross for your sins. He rose again on the third day. And now he's ruling and reigning. And the church has been going on for 2,000 years. Dude, I'm fired up today, man. I'm fired up today. Listen, listen. God, we... Has there ever been a time in life where we've needed him so much? We've needed him. We do. I, I want to, before I start... Um, our message this morning, of course, I want to be able to address uh, some of what's happened in our nation this past week, um, and I want to give us some, I want to remind you of something I shared with you a couple of months ago as we were talking about Ephesians 2, and we were talking about our desire and the design to be a multi-ethnic church, okay? Um, I, th there's a scholar by the name of Larry Hurtado, okay? Scottish man, I know sounds Cuban. He wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods, Okay? And he said that the early Christian church, what made it distinct was these five characteristics. It was that the early church during Roman times, by the way, they had no political power. Here's their five characteristics. They had demonstrated a care for the unborn, care for the poor, a new sexual ethic, a multi-ethnic, a gospel-driven diversity, and then finally, forgiveness. Those were five marks of the early church. We've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, about establishing a culture in reality that is countercultural to what we see in our world, to live a kingdom style of culture. And what happens is when you live that kind of way, you don't fit in nicely to any political system. You see, generally in the United States, what happens is the idea of uh, a new sexual ethic and care for the unborn is associated with the Republican Party. And care for the poor and gospel in diversity, right? That's kind of associated with the Democratic Party and of course forgiveness of each other enemies that's not associated with anybody, right? But guess what? In the Christian life, okay, in the way of Jesus, we embody these five things. So when it comes to a decision like the reversal of Roe v. Wade, okay, as Christians what we do is our posture in humility. We do celebrate it. Because we value the sanctity of life. We believe, you see, this is how it's connected. The, it's what the scripture calls the imago Dei, the image of God, right? We believe it's so valuable that you cannot put a price on that. So that's why we care about the life of the unborn. And at the same time, it connects to care for the poor. It connects to the multi-ethnic church. It connects to us being able to value the image of God in people that look different from us. 
Do you see that? There's a consistency in that. At the same time, this is a great opportunity to live into our heritage. The heritage of Christianity is that we have been a people who do care for people from the womb to the tomb. If you look at the institutions in the history that Christians have established, we have been able to care for the poor. We've established hospitals. We lead the way in adoption. Listen, this is very personal to me because our daughters, we both adopted them. And we understand the consequences of what can happen, right? When a woman who has an unplanned pregnancy, un unplanned pregnancy, right, makes the choice to abort a baby. With that being said, it's an opportunity for us to step into caring, right, caring for women in our society. That's one of the reasons why we partner with an organization called One More Child. Panos is a national director of that organization. Praise God, right? We get to partner, right, with that particular organization. Part of your giving goes to an organization like One More Child. It's important to say this too. Uh, when, when you've been counseling as a pastor in one of these situations, what you realize is a lot of the times why people have abortions is because there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear around unplanned pregnancies. So I want to encourage us as a church humbly to, to yes, we can, we can say, hey, God, we honor you, and I believe that this decision glorifies you, yet at the same time, uh, the work, of course, is not done. It gives us an opportunity to care for women, to be compassionate, to be empathetic. It, it gives us an opportunity to remind, to remind you. You may be here. You may have had an abortion. God loves you, right? God loves you. He has compassion for you. We want to be those kind of people, amen, amen. Where, where somebody who walks in here, right, that there ought to be nobody here who walks into reality, who has an unplanned pregnancy that is not going to be taken care of by the church. Let that be said of us. Amen. So with that being said, we continue in this series called Live Different. Live Different. We've been in the Sermon in the Mount. And today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us to the book of Luke. Here's how it's going to connect. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see that Jesus is going to move to be able to talk about loving others, to displaying his love horizontally, the love that is in us through the kingdom of God. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to, to read Luke chapter 16, okay? Um, and it's a parable that is going to teach us about what it looks like, uh, of course, to care for those who cannot care for themselves and um, what that reveals about your heart and what that reveals about my heart. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Luke chapter 16. We'll be in verses 19 through 31. Luke 19 verses 19 through 31. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, the verses will come up on the screen. You don't own a Bible. Um, part of what we do is we just teach it. We let you wrestle with it. You can write questions if you don't, you know, we don't have to pretend like we know everything about the scriptures. You know, I've been where you've been. I've sat where you sat. I grew up in church sometimes and I pretended to be like, mm -hmm, yeah, I understand what he's saying. No idea. Let me go home. Okay. So I want to encourage you to take notes and make sure that this moment, this is, we have been preparing for you. Okay. Uh, to be able to look at the word. So Luke 16 verses 19 through 31. This is what it reads. There was a rich man. This is Jesus talking, who would dress in purple and fine linen, 
feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off and Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that all who want to come and pass over from here to there, you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if somebody rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, please open up our eyes and our hearts to understand what this text means, Lord, and how it applies to our lives, Lord. Help us to receive it humbly. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. In one of the greatest poems that has ever been written, Paradise Lost, John Milton depicts the fall of one of God's angels. And the name of this particular angel is Mammon. Now, Mammon is an ancient word that sometimes means money, or it refers to a god of money. And in this poem, what happens is Milton tells this story of that this angel, even in heaven, was more captivated by the streets of gold in heaven than by God. And so Milton writes this. He says, Mammon led them on. Mammon, the least erected spirit that fell from heaven. For even in heaven, his looks and thoughts were always downward bent, right? He wasn't looking up. Admiring more the riches of heaven's pavement, trodden gold, than aught divine or holy else enjoyed. Who can blame him? Who can blame this fallen angel in this fictional poem? God has made fascinating works, hasn't he? I mean, we, most of us, we live in Miami. It's a city of glitz and glam, and we have the opportunity to go outside and take in the beauty of the ocean, to go out on a boat, to um, have dinner al fresco with friends and take in the cool breeze of the air of the Atlantic at least five months out of the year, right? We have the opportunity to have a home. Here we live in the West and we can lavish in our comfort with family. Think about the things that you want in life. Imagine that everything you wanted, 
you had it right now. How would that make you feel? If everything you've ever desired in life, if you had it today, how would that make you feel? Would it make you feel safe? Would it make you feel secure? Jesus here in this text, he's talking to a group of religious people. We've been talking about them for some weeks called the Pharisees, these religious self-righteous leaders. And they're listening to him teach these parables, uh, stories that essentially have uh, some metaphorical meaning about the truth of the kingdom of God. And he's, Jesus has been telling stories about things that have been lost. Very famous stories in Luke chapter 15. And then he gets to this dramatic parable uh, that we're going to take a look at today. And it's a parable that deals, if you noticed, with ultimate things in life. It deals with our hearts, with choices, with life and with death. There are two lives, two destinies here, two questions. And in this famous story, also known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus is going to challenge us to examine our hearts and ask ourselves a question, what does our life reveal about what we trust in? What does, like, if, if our actions could speak, what would they say about us? And so he's going to give us a vision. And if we learn anything in this parable is this, that a clear vision of the future, a clear vision of our destiny should open our eyes to the present. A clear vision of the future should open our eyes to the present. Okay, so let, let's look back at that text in verse 19. Uh, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day, but a poor man named Lazarus, he's covered with sores. He was lying at the rich man's gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. So uh, Jesus is depicting these two different lives that represent two different extremes. The rich man, he's living like a king. He's wearing purple, the color of royalty. It's made out of a particular seashell dye that he could have only gotten from one of those special merchants in Merrick Park, right? Whatever that was back then. He's living that 24-carat life, the extravagance, the parties, the swag. This man has it all. Have you met this man? Have you met this person, this woman? But outside of his mansion is another man named Lazarus, a poor, sick, destitute man. He's homeless. The clothes in the back. In his back stinks. He looks at people, but people don't look back at him for fear that he'll ask them something. His goals are so low that he doesn't even want the rich man's house. He just wants the scraps of food that may fall down from his table. He is poor. Have you met this man? Have you met this woman? His condition is so desperate, it says in the text that even the wild dogs who were repugnant in Jewish culture, they would lick his wounds and increase the man's agony. He is a man in pain. He is poor. And poverty, and, and, and poverty is so much more than economic status, isn't it? It's interesting. In the 1990s, the World Bank 
which is an organization that tries to alleviate poverty on a global scale, they conducted this research of over 60,000 people who were poor, and they asked them the question, what's poverty? What's poverty? Here's one of the answers. For a poor, per for a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. That's poverty. It's not just what you have in your bank account. It's so much more than that. So who does Lazarus represent in the story? He represents the faceless. He represents the nameless. He represents those who are invisible. Do you see? <laughs> but in the mercy and genius of Jesus, Lazarus becomes the only person in one of Jesus' parables that is given a name. Isn't that interesting? It's a contradiction, it's a contraction, sorry, his name, of the Hebrew name Eleazar. And it means God helps. God helps. And as you'll see, this is not a coincidence. It matters in the story because what you realize is that we have to ask our question, who is the one that God helps? So we go back to this question. What do our actions say that we are? How do our actions speak about our life? I love this quote by a man called Gustavo Gutierrez. He says, you say you love the poor, then tell me, what are their names? Jesus gives us a vision of the future so that we can open our eyes to the present. Look at this in Luke 16, verse 22 to 23. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and he saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. There's a reversal of fortunes here in the story. Did you see the drama? People were probably hanging on to the words that Jesus is delivering. This poor man, the one that no one wanted, the invisible one, he's the one ending up in Abraham's side. Abraham's side in the Jewish imagination represented in some ways this idea of heaven. So he may have been invisible to the rich man, but he wasn't invisible to the real king. He may have stood outside the opulent gate of the wealthy, but now he was standing inside the gates of heaven. His name may have never been written down in the guest list, but now we find out that his name was written in the book of life. Listen, I, I want to encourage you, some of you who may be here today, you may feel like Lazarus. You may feel invisible. You may not be as poor as he is, but you feel as unwanted as he was. And maybe you've been standing outside of the gate, let's say proverbially, of your company and you never got a call back. 
or you stood outside the gate of a hospital begging somebody to help you, but you didn't have the money for the insurance. Maybe you stood outside the door of your parents' house wanting to be heard, to be loved, but you were treated as if though you were invisible. And you may even feel today that you're invisible to God because for some reason he said no to one of your prayers. And if you're in that place today, I want you to remember who he is and that he remembers your name. He remembers who you are. The same God that delivered you in your past is the same God that delivers you in the future. Even if you don't feel like it today, this is the nature of God. He is constant. He is consistent. He is good and he's for you by the power of the spirit and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We discover here that, of course, demographics aren't destiny. Our situation today doesn't have to define our future. And we discover that God is the one who helps those who cannot help themselves. But on the opposite side, what happens to this rich man? He finds himself separated in the pres- by the, from the presence of God. He's in a place of torment in Hades, which represents hell. And in the text, it says that in the midst of his suffering... There's a moment where there is a realization. In an instant, he realizes that the actions of his earthly life had eternal consequences. And it says in the text that he looked up and he saw. He looked up and he saw. Why? Does suffering and pain and death often have to take place in order for us to look up and to see? Pain has a way of waking us up. That's what we're seeing here. This is a story. This is a parable. Jesus is proving a point here. The psalmist writes, I love this, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to see the future so that we can open our eyes today. Okay, after living in luxury for so many years, after having so many opportunities to love and to care for Lazarus, why is it only now that the rich man lifts up his eyes to see? He was distracted. Maybe he was numb. And in our daily life, uh, often when you meet with somebody who's going through something really difficult, It may be something uh, of an addiction of a certain kind of nature. It may be that something happened in a couple's relationship. It's something that happens generally after the consequence, after the pain is when you look up and you lift your eyes and you see. And we live during a time where so many things, technology, wealth, they can distract us from looking up and actually seeing what's right in front of us. And what do you think Jesus is doing here? He's telling the story so that we can open up our eyes today as a church, as individuals. Listen, we open up our eyes partly when we read the story to see our own idols, to see the idols of our heart, right? And what's an idol? An idol represents what we worship, what we put our trust in. And here's what happens with idols. They blind us. They blind us to what God wants us to see. And the particular idol in the story that blinded the rich man to Lazarus was his idol. 
You can talk back to me. It's money. That's right. It's wealth. It's greed. We fix our eyes on what we value most. We fix our eyes on what we value most. And if what you value most is money, then your level and satisfaction in this life will be directly proportionate to the trust that you've put on money. If that's you today and you looked at your stocks, <laughs> how's that going? <laughs> Listen, scripture, by the way, doesn't condemn you for having money. It doesn't call us to live in a perpetual state of oppression or material poverty. Abraham himself, actually, who is in the story, was a wealthy man in the Old Testament. But it warns us so many times, the scripture does, of the deceptive power of wealth. And this idol of money, it, listen, it connects three great idols that are present in the American dream. What are those three great idols? Success, comfort, and security. Success, comfort, and security. If we're always obsessed about these three values, if we're always obsessed about success and comfort and security, then we'll probably be blind to the Lazarus outside our gate. To the Lazarus who is destitute outside the gates of our community. It can blind us. It can blind us to those who have been marginalized and oppressed. If we're never willing to sacrifice our comfort and security, then how can we say that the love of God is in us? This is what 1 John 3.17 says. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We learn here that what we do flows from who we are and what we value most. What is it today that you value most in your and what is the consequence of putting your trust in that particular idol? Look back at the text. See what happens. So the rich man, he looks up. He sees Abraham a long way off and Lazarus at his side. He says, Father Abraham, he calls out, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life. Abraham has a really deep voice, by the way. I don't know what happened there, you know. I really got into this text, okay. <laughs> you received your good things. <laughs> um, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you're in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed. What an interesting word. Between us and you. So that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there to cross over to us. What an incredible irony in this story. Lazarus only wanted crumbs from the table of the rich man. And it's now the rich man who wants but for Lazarus just to give him a drop of water. That's all he wants, just a drop. Except Abraham in a loving way, he says, Child, what you did not provide him with then... He cannot provide you with now. And here's why. Because there's this great chasm between them. Well, so what's going on here? The rich man discovers that there's a connection, right, between the way we live in this life and how we live the next one. And maybe Jesus was thinking about Proverbs 22, 22 when he was delivering this parable. This is what the proverb says. Don't rob a poor person because he is poor and don't crush the oppressed at the city gate. 
For the Lord will champion their cause and will plunder those who plunder them. But wait, Carlos, <laughs> hold on a second, dude. It sounds a little bit like what you're saying is that the way to get to heaven, to Abraham's side, is making sure that we do good works in this life. And that doesn't sound a lot like the grace that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Well, how do you know that somebody is a follower of Jesus? How do you know? That's right. It's by their fruit. It's by their fruit. It's by the way they live their life. You don't get to Jesus by being a good person, by having perfect behavior, by dedicating yourself to good causes. That doesn't earn you, right, a relationship with God. But what happens is when you begin to trust in Jesus, he changes us. And your actions begin to reflect the very heart of God. Your eyes begin to see what he sees. Your eyes begin to break. Your heart begins to break for the things that break his heart. And so the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, he saw you. He saw the poverty of your spirit, the blindness inside our hearts. And he chose to leave the perfection and the wealth of heaven to become poor, to die on a cross, so that through his death and resurrection, you could experience what it truly means to be rich. He wants that for us. And that's why he's warning us in this story, because he knows we're, we're either going to open up our eyes now or we're going to open them up later. What does he want us to do? He wants to open our eyes to see what God sees. I love what James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17 says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. But you don't, <laughs> there's, sar there's sarcasm in the scripture. Isn't that, isn't that wild? When you read the text, it's like, okay, cool. But you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. The one question we can ask ourselves today is, does my heart reflect the heart of God? Do I care about the things that God cares about? Do I care about the poor, the broken, the marginalized? Or does my life just revolve around me? After Abraham denies the man's first request, look at what he says. It's really interesting. Father, he says, I, I beg you to send him to my father's house. Okay, you can't give me a drop of water? Then, then I want you to send him. I, I want you to send him to my house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. This is terrible, right? But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if somebody rises from the dead. What do you mean, Abraham? What's he saying? He's saying this. God's word is enough. God's word is enough for your brothers. God's declaration, his gospel, is enough for us. Haven't you negotiated 
with God in the same way that this rich man is negotiating with Abraham at times? Like in your own walk with him? God, if you give me this lottery ticket, man, if you could just show me right now a miraculous sign in the sky, like I, I, I believe, like I will do it if you do these things. If you could just uh, confirm that we actually have to like plead the car, like which wit are you talking about? And there's people that want money all the time on the streets. I don't know how to make that decision, God. If you could just confirm that for me. Like if you could tell me how, like, okay, if you actually tell me that I need to serve, then I would actually do it. But no, Abraham clarifies. If they didn't hear the word of God through Moses and the prophets, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. If you didn't put your trust in him with all of the miracles that he already performed in the past in the people of Israel, you will not trust him with a new miracle in the future. Hundreds of Jesus, uh, hundreds of people saw Jesus rise from the dead and yet they did not believe. If you're here and what's holding you back from placing your trust in Jesus is that you're waiting for some miraculous sign to appear from the sky. At the time when Jesus, he performed wonders and not everyone believed. In fact, people actually wanted to kill him. These, these people didn't even need faith in the time of Jesus. They actually saw that he rose from the dead. And even with that, there were many people who did not believe. So what does that mean for you and for me? Well, how do you become a Christian? How do you become a Christian, Carlos? Well, you, John puts it like this. These things are written in the scriptures that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. You place your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and he requires everything. He doesn't want 99.78% of you. He wants 100%. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's what Jesus says. What profit a man if he gained the whole world, but he loses his soul. Church, listen, if we learn anything in this parable, okay, is that God, of course, gives us a clear vision of the future so we can open up our eyes in the present, but also, Particularly, if you value idols, if you value riches more than God, you cannot be his disciple. If the way you make decisions primarily in your life is around the idol and wealth of money, that's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And secondly, if God's love is in you, then that love needs to be expressed in action. What do your actions, what do my actions reveal about our heart today? I want to spend some time praying now. And uh, I know this is a heavy text, you know. This is a tough warning from the Lord in terms of how we love people. And even as a church, I was having this conversation last night uh, with Panos. I spoke to Pastor Gus as well. We're talking about, hey, um, in addition to what we're already doing, like I said, with supporting some of these ministries, what are some of the ways that our church is going to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this community? So that if this church were not here anymore, that the community would say, my gosh, where are those crazy Christians? Because they at least felt the love of God expressed tangibly in a very real way. So I'm going to ask you to stand up if you're able to. And let's spend some time in prayer. And I'm going to ask you to actually repeat some things with me. 
We're going to ask God for some specific things this morning. Lord, I thank you for the good news of the gospel, Lord. Thank you, God, that today we don't have to walk out of here as people who are enslaved. But God, we can walk out of here a free people, freed by your love, freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, that allows us to serve others without having to prove our worth to them, without having to earn your love, God. I pray that you would help us today, God, to walk out of this place with a sense of radical freedom, Lord, freedom to love, freedom to serve. God, I do pray, Lord, please, if we have not been faithful, Lord, in loving our neighbor, God, in loving those who are around us, God, we repent for that, Lord. Teach us the way, Father, please. We want to please you, Lord. We want to follow you, Lord. And so in view of that, God, we ask you um, these couple of things. And if you agree with me on this, I want you to pray this to the Lord out loud. Why don't you say to him right now, give me ears to hear your word. If you agree with me, why don't you ask him this, open my eyes to see what you see. Why don't you tell him, soften my heart to love like you love. And move my feet to action. Please, Jesus Christ, I pray that you would help us to be that kind of church and that kind of person. We trust you. We love you. And I pray for those who are here who may not know you, who may not have a relationship with you, that even today you would open up their eyes to see the greatness and the beauty of Jesus Christ. We worship you now. We sing in Jesus' name.